Stephen has just become the first recorded martyr of the early church in chapter 7. And the beginning of chapter 8 mentions that Saul was consenting. You see it there at the very opening. Saul was consenting or approving of his death. Saul, of course, had been part of the Sanhedrin, and um, they uh, were involved in these confrontations with the early church. Saul had just been mentioned for the first time in Luke's history in chapter 7, verse 58, when it says that the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. The young man was anywhere from 24 to 40 years old. We know from that time uh, in history how they viewed the ages. And as wanton lawless bloodlust often leads to, this killing of Stephen launched a massive persecution the first wholesale persecution of Christianity that we know of, recorded here by Luke. Because look what verse 1 goes on and says, At that time a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Everybody was on the run. Only the apostles remained back there in Jerusalem. Verse 2 says, And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. Made great lamentation over him. There is nothing wrong with lamenting or mourning the death of a loved one. Some Christians have this idea that they must be all joyous when someone dies who is a Christian because they've gone to be with the Lord. But that is American evangelical Christianity nonsense. Yes, you also are comforted and have joy that they are with the Lord, but there is nothing wrong with mourning the loss of a loved one who knew Christ. You should mourn and you should lament. Nothing unspiritual about it. You have lost someone you love. Remember, even Jesus wept regarding Lazarus, right? So notice that they buried him. Burial was the way of the Hebrews, and burial was the way of Christian people for centuries. The idea of burning the bodies was something that came in later in American Christianity and throughout the West, but by the early church it was viewed as abhorrent. It was something that the Romans did and that the pagans did. The body was viewed as having some sacredness to it as it had been the tent in which the person dwelt made in the image of God. Verse 3 says, As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. So verse 3 records more of the persecution the church began to suffer after Stephen's martyrdom. And it says here that Saul was wreaking havoc. Quite literally means he began to destroy the church. He began to destroy the church. That word havoc, destroy. Saul wanted to wipe the church out, take it off the map early on, as Barney Fife would say, nip it in the bud. Right? And that was his thinking. Now there's two things here I want to point out about this matter of persecution. First, one thing I've learned over my years in my reading of church history also is that the Lord will only allow those who persecute His people to go so far. Doesn't mean you won't be harmed. Doesn't mean you might not be martyred. 
That's all in his hands. But he only allows them to go so far regarding his purposes in your life. And his purposes for you might be different than the next guy. One person might be martyred, another one might be delivered from it and go on with their life, right? He only allows them to persecute his people so far. That's in his hands. He is sovereign even over that. When people abuse and attack us or persecute us, and even Christian people do this to Christian people, the Lord only allows them to go so far. You can rest assured that your life and that situation is in his hands. You have to rest in that. And you can rest in that you know he has not forsaken you, that he sees it, and he will only allow them to go so far. You have to be able to take whatever that so far is upon yourself to submit to it, to allow him and his sovereign decree to work it for good in your life and in the lives of others. Amen? How far they go may be more than what you think they should be allowed. But that is in his hands, and that's why you must put trust in him. It's the Lord's doing. He is the sovereign. He may want you to be martyred. He may want you to suffer, but to continue forward, using the pain and suffering for good in your life to build better character in you. He is sovereign over our lives. We should be willing to suffer for his name's sake. We should be willing to suffer for his name's sake. It's part of Christian life. Suffering is part of the Christian life. It's sad when the religious or wicked men make our suffering seem to have to do with us being bad people or doing something bad. It's easier when we are seen to be good by others and we are persecuted. You know, like when I used to do time in jail for interposing at the doors of abortion clinics. Everybody knew I was in there for something good. That's easier. It's harder when our reputation is maligned and we are made out to be evildoers. And many Christians over the centuries even went to martyrdom under this cloud. Understand that. To their deaths under that cloud, never redeeming their reputation while they were still alive, at least, in the eyes of men. Understand that. Even Jesus was called a wine-bibber and a glutton by men. And remember what Paul said in Philippians 3.10, a verse that our brother Dale pointed out to me after a sermon I did a few weeks back. Paul said in Philippians 3.10, quote, that I may know him, talking about Jesus, and the power of his resurrection, and then look what it says, and the fellowship of his sufferings. And the fellowship of his sufferings. That is part of the Christian life. The fellowship of Christ's sufferings all, most of Christianity wants us to have nothing, to, you know, no, God doesn't want you to suffer. He has nothing but the best for you. <laughs> you know, a tinted windshield on the Lexus, you know, lattes every morning. Yeah, and on and on, right? It's all good and wonderful and cheery and a bed of roses. No, the scriptures talk repeatedly about suffering and the fellowship of his, Christ's suffering, is part of our life. So you allow him to use it for good in your life. Sometimes we suffer in the attacks and persecutions against us as evildoers in the sight of men, even though, just like Christ, we were not. We are not. The bottom line is, 
What is really important to remember is be faithful and true to him. That is the bottom line. Be faithful and true to him. He knows what is true and what is a lie. And if you live faithful and true to him, your heart will not condemn you. Secondly, about this matter of persecution, is that that I want you to see, is that Saul, this great persecutor of the church, would become a Christian. Here he is, this great persecutor of the church here. He would become a Christian, radically transformed by the power of God and become a great champion of the Lord. And guess what? This is seen down through the eyes of church history. The Lord only allows them to go so far and then they either are cut off in their wickedness or they are one to Christ. They end their savage attacks against his people either by cross or by sword. They're either converted to him or cut off in their wickedness, by cross or by sword. Even from the bowels of Christ-hating communism during my lifetime when I was young, we have seen persecutors of the church won to Christ. Men who hounded the Christians, rounded them up, persecuted them in severe ways, actually coming to know the Lord. And we see that in stories within early Christianity, Reformation times, Now understand, persecution accomplishes much good. We may not like it. I know I don't like it, okay? I don't know what I would ever do if they, like, you know, tied me down to a chair and started whittling on the flesh of my fingers with a paring knife, you know? Only God's grace makes you endure some of the evils that our brothers and sisters have endured before us and in some countries right now are enduring even as I speak. Only the grace of God can help you overcome that. But persecution does accomplish good. It not only creates better godly character in the lives of those Christians persecuted who persevere in their walk with the Lord, but it also purifies the church corporately when there is widespread persecution. It purifies the church corporately. Why? because the pretenders leave the church at that time. And we also see that in church history over and over again. The pretenders leave. The tares are gone. They don't want to suffer for Jesus. And verse 4 here gives us yet another good that persecution accomplishes. It says, Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Because of persecution, the gospel spread. God used it. Do you think they were going to give up their homes? Think of your home, those of you who are married especially. Okay, it's like your nest, right? It's where you hang out. It's You've put a lot of effort and time into establishing it. Very few people are going to get up and I'm going to take the gospel over here, right? God uses persecution where, yeah, well, I do want to live, so I'll give this all up so I can move somewhere else in order to continue on, on the planet. And God uses that to spread his word everywhere, the persecution of the church, everywhere. The Lord, you may recall, had already providentially poured out the Holy Spirit during the gathering for Pentecost when tens of thousands have gathered there. They all heard this message And they went back to their various geographical areas and nations and made the message of Jesus known in some form 
to everyone there. Now God is sending his people themselves to these other geographical areas through persecution. Jesus himself spoke of this in Matthew 10.23. He stated, quote, When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. When persecution takes place, a truly biblical response is fleeing. <laughs> okay? You don't have to kiss the stake necessarily and be martyred. God will have that for some. He had that for Stephen, didn't he? But for others, fleeing is something that is biblical to do, and God uses it to spread his word to areas that may not have had the gospel brought to them. And this reveals an important matter about chapter 8 here. Namely, that what Jesus said before he left earth was coming to pass. Look at Acts. Turn there with me. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Christ's final words before he's taken up to the right hand of the Father. He says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea. Jerusalem was in Judea. And Samaria and to the end of the earth. Samaria was just north of Judea. So here Jesus makes it clear, they're going to take the gospel to Jerusalem, to all Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And here chapter 8 is about the gospel now being taken to Samaria, to the Samaritans and beyond. As we'll go on and see here in chapter 8 next week, Philip not only brings the gospel to the Samaritans, but he brings the gospel to an Ethiopian. The gospel is for everyone. This was something the Jews had to learn because they were thinking this was their little thing. They had misunderstood the Old Testament way things were done, thought they was their little thing. They begrudgingly let foreigners in on it. And now in the New Testament, it's important that they learn, no, it's for everyone. And Acts chapter 10 and 11 will drive this home. Because not only do we have this whole chapter, chapter 8, making this clear to the Jews, but also chapters 10 and 11 make it clear to the Jews that the gospel is for everyone, both Jew and Gentile. So Luke states in verse 4 here, Therefore those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. And to highlight this fact, he uses Philip's evangelistic efforts. Understand there were many Christians fanning out across Samaria. He's just using Philip's example to highlight what he has said in the fact that the gospel is now being spread beyond Jerusalem and Judea and into Samaria and beyond. Philip leaves Jerusalem because of the persecution and heads north to Samaria. And look at verses 5 through 8. It says, Then Philip went to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. And there was great joy in that city. Who was Philip? 
Remember, he was one of the seven deacons chosen. Stephen was the first one. He's already been martyred. The very second one named in Acts chapter 6, verse 5, Acts chapter 6, verse 5, is Philip. So deacons weren't just like these little myopic dudes who sat off on the side doing, you know, stuff inside the church as service to the body. They were known to go out into the field and preach, you know, kind of like Michael John. You know, he goes out into the field and preaches. Yet he's a deacon here at Mercy Seat Church, right? So this is like a big deal. We do know that Philip later settled in Caesarea, which was where? In Samaria. How do we know he settled in Caesarea? Well, turn to Acts chapter 21 and look at verses 8 and 9. Acts chapter 21 and look at verses 8 and 9. It says, on the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven. One of the seven what? Deacons. Original deacons. And stayed with him. So after this happened, what's about, what's talked about here in verses five through eight, all this stuff going on in Samaria, the people being filled with joy, accepting the gospel. Philip decides to settle amongst the Samaritans. Caesarea was located 65 miles northwest of Jerusalem along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, which back then was known as the Great Sea. He probably spent the rest of his life winning Samaritans to Jesus. That's, that's what Philip did. And this is a major development of Jesus' declaration that they should be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. The gospel is now spreading beyond Jerusalem and all Judea to Samaria. This was particularly huge because the Samaritans were hated and disdained by the Jews and by the Judeans. The Samaritans were hated by the Jews. Disliked. The reason for this dislike and disdain was centuries old. Listen to me now. A little heady. Okay? We all know at Mercy Seat you've got to use your brain during the preaching time. We're not just up here with pom-poms and giving you a call to, I don't know what, a self-improvement program? No, we actually want to learn about biblical matters. The reason for this dislike and disdain was centuries old. It began, number one, in the 10th century B.C. when the ten tribes broke from Jerusalem, Judea and Benjamin. Remember that? Ten tribes gone. So Judea and Jerusalem and Benjamin were separated from them. That began this dislike. Number two, it developed a racial component when the Assyrian king Sargon destroyed the city of Samaria in 722 B.C., And those Israelites in Samaria were racially mixed with other peoples due to the Assyrian policy of mixing the populations in order to weaken them and give the Assyrians a stronghold over the peoples by mixing their faiths, their ethnicity, and everything else. It helped strengthen the state and its rule over the peoples. So the Jews viewed the Samaritans as half-breeds. Number three, the Samaritans built their own temple in Mount Gerizim in the 5th century B.C. 
right? So the Jews are all ticked off about that. That's absolute schism. The true God can only be worshipped in Jerusalem. And now they build a false temple in Mount Gerizim up there. And number four, the Samaritans fought with the Seleucids from 167 to 164 B.C. during the conflict of the Maccabees. Remember the Maccabees? I even have a son whose middle name is Maccabeus. It means to hammer. They were great warriors, great fighters. Well, the Samaritans fought with who the Maccabees were fighting against, which was the Seleucids. So there was this huge dislike and disdain of the Jews towards the Samaritans, and now the gospel is being taken to them. These Jewish believers are having to take the gospel to them. Is this awesome? This is huge. By the way, this is why the parable of the Good Samaritan by Jesus was so powerful. A Samaritan who the Jews hated was the one who treated his neighbor, a Jew, with biblical love. It was a powerful lesson for the Jews. It was a powerful rebuke for the Jews when Jesus shared that parable. Verse 6 reveals many of the Samaritans turned to Christ. The Jewish Christians were learning that the gospel was for all men, not just the Jews, and they would learn much more as this understanding unfolded even more in chapters 10 and 11, the whole story of Peter and Cornelius. Let me conclude this sermon by looking at verses 9 through 13. Some may find that's an odd place to stop, but it's for a purpose. And um, we will continue on in verse 14 next week. But verses 9 through 13 says, But there was a certain man called Simon here in Samaria, who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. People have always been dazzled by signs, wonders, miracles. Always have been. And that's why frauds have been able to even, you know, do well in Christian circles. Because even Christian people, oh, look at the, wow. That's, I want that. Right? Crazy. So anyways, this guy was using sorceries and this stuff can be demonic. It can be demonic. Where the devil does things in order to get people to believe false things. It's nothing to be trifled with. So they're, they're heeding him because he had astonished them. He's believing, they're believing his teachings because he astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. But when they believe Philip, look at that, verse 12, but when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and signs which were done. We'll talk more about that next week. But notice verse 12. When they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. This is massive. The kingdom of God and the gospel 
topples this idol amongst the Samaritans. This idol of Simon and his false teaching and his false signs and wonders is toppled by the declaration of the gospel and the people believing the words of the gospel. How are men called to Christ? Remember I talked about that the other week? Through the preaching of the gospel. That's why we must, this idea that, you know, preach the gospel, use words if necessary, utter nonsense. It is necessary. (laughs) You preach the gospel. You make his words known to men. So Philip preaches, they believe. And this huge idol where everyone from the least to the greatest is believing this guy to be the great power of God is exposed to be the idol that it is. And it's toppled. (sighs) Falls over right in the midst of all of Samaria. From the mere preaching of the word of God. This false teacher is upstaged by the gospel, repudiated by the gospel, and he himself appears to be one to Christ by the gospel. This is a goodness of the gospel. Listen to me now. It is iconoclastic. The gospel is iconoclastic. In other words, it destroys idols. It topples them. Demolishes, smashes idols. The history of Christianity is a history of iconoclasm. Magdeburg was the first city to embrace the gospel during the Reformation. And Luther said that they took the city without firing a shot. By simply being faithful to Christ in the gospel, they took the city. They confronted the idol of their day, Roman Catholicism, and its power and wealth, calling men to repentance and challenging the power structures of the day. And he totally toppled them. So they confronted the idol of their day, Roman Catholicism, confronted all its power and wealth, calling men to repentance and challenging the power structures of their day regarding the civil authorities, regarding the religious authorities. But today... Christians want nothing to do with the iconoclasm of the gospel. They want nothing to do with the church militant standing in opposition to men and the laws and governments of men that impugn the law and word of God. They want nothing to do with that, the Christianity of our day. They want nothing to do with a conquestorial Jesus whose kingdom is to spread to all the nations of the world because we are to disciple all the nations as he has commanded. Herbert Schlossberg, in his book, Idols for Destruction, which everyone should read. How many of you have read Idols for Destruction? Five people. I bought it for all of my kids for Christmas a year ago. Extremely important work. In that book, Idols for Destruction, Schlossberg is speaking about the rejection of the prophets. And remember, Stephen just talked about the rejection of the prophets in chapter 7, verse 52, right before they killed him. In verse 51 of chapter 7, he says, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did so to you. And then he says in verse 52, Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. 
So Schlossberg's talking about this, about the rejection of the prophets in our day. And he says, quote, This is why the vocation of the prophet is so unpopular and hazardous. The contemporary church, in contrast to the prophets, for the most part, has made peace with this society's best. In a society in which idolatry runs rampant, and it does in America, a church that is not iconoclastic is a travesty. If it is not against the idols, it is with them. Unquote. Schlossberg hit the nail on the head. Present-day American Christianity wants nothing to do with confronting idols. They allow the idols of our day to flourish. A huge idol in our day is statism. American Christianity has no interest in confronting the state or the idols it has created. Their cry is like that of Rousseau. Let a thousand gods blossom so long as none of their cults interferes with the overarching devotion to the state. It's the same thinking of the Romans of old. You can have your little dopey religion as long as it doesn't have any practical application in everyday life. Just this last week, the Supreme Court ruled that the little cross can stay where the veterans have their big fight, where some wicked men are trying to remove the cross. Supreme Court, oh, you can keep the cross. But do you see their hypocrisy? SCOTUS does everything absolutely contrary to what that cross symbolizes. The murder of the pre-born, two men or two women marrying, and on down the line. They have promulgated the immorality, the injustice through their court opinions, stands in complete contradiction to the cross. But do you see what they did? The Christians will be like, oh, wow, look, it gives the court integrity in the Christian's mind. Keeps them on the hamster wheel to keep trying to get Roe v. Wade overturned through another case. An absurdity when interposition and stopping the bloodshed is the duty of the other magistrates. Not trying to create another case to undo it. Something that's been tried for 46 years and has failed every time, by the way. This is the situation. They will let you keep your dopey little religion, as long as it has no actual application in everyday life. And that's what we're dealing with in American Christianity, Christianity that likes it that way. Schlossberg writes, quote, In sociological terms, the church functions as just another means used by the political and social establishment to integrate society's values into the next generation. And that's exactly what the Supreme Court has been doing. What they can't get through legislative means, they do through raw judicial power. They corrupt each succeeding generation. I'm 58 and I've watched it in my days alone. I've read history on top of that. Slasberg says, in sociological terms, the church functions as just another means used by the political and social establishment to integrate society's values in the next generation. What is all of Christendom doing now? It's rewriting 2,000 years of biblical interpretation to accommodate itself to homo sex. Did you ever think you would see a Christianity that could accommodate itself to homo sex? And yet, who's being used to get it down into society, to integrate it into the new values of society? The church. 
I have plenty of young kids. We have 11 children. Plenty of them have gone and plenty of them right now visit youth groups at other churches. Almost every single kid there is cool with homosex. And these are Bible-believing places. And if you ask the youth pastor or the leaders of the church to do something about the slaughter of the preborn or something about homosex, no, they have nothing. They can barely admit that it's a sin. Barely admit. Actually take action against what's being done in the public realm to foist this upon everyone. They want nothing to do with that. Truth always reveals hearts. And I've always taught my children, you think they're wonderful people there? Show the leadership a video, this five-minute video of babies killed by abortion, and ask them, what can we, can we go out to the death camps? Can we do something about this minister-wise? You know what they say? No! Every time without exception. No! And then they even condemn those who do go out. That's the type of Christianity we have in America. It's evil. It's unbiblical. True Christianity confronts the idols of the day and smashes them. So Schlossberg says again, in sociological terms, the church functions as just another means used by the political and social establishment to integrate society's values into the next generation. He goes on and says, the support it receives depends on the extent to which it uncritically transmits the values. And that's what we have, a Christianity that's uncritically transmitting the values of the state to Christian people. Schlossberg goes on and says, its passivity makes it acceptable and ensures its irrelevance. And that is what Christianity is in America today. Absolutely irrelevant. It is as irrelevant and insane as someone standing on the Titanic dusting the paintings while everyone else is getting into the lifeboats because the ship's sinking. That's how irrelevant American Christianity is in America. This is me talking now. Sociological observations confirm that, by and large, the Christianity of the United States does not teach values that are distinctive to Christian traditions. But rather, American Christianity uses religious terminology that ratifies the values of the broader society. Like the word love. Like the word love. I'm going to be doing a whole sermon on that. Christians have totally, just as the world has transformed the definition of the word love, Christians have embraced that false definition. And it's evil. And that's why we now have Christians where we should just love them. You shouldn't think they can't get married because they just love each other. The first thing I ask all these Christians when they say that to me, I say define love. Because until you define love, you're wasting your time. And you know what I found with most of them? They can't define it. (laughs) It's just this dopey slogan that they're parroting, that they've heard ad nauseum. And then if they're forced to actually define it, they have to actually define it, they see the absurdity of their definition. 
and you're able to point it out to them. Listen to me now. This worthless form of American Christianity in our day eases tensions while biblical Christianity creates them. While all the world's going to hell in a handbasket, going along to get along, we don't because we love Him. And we're true to Him. So we won't. The conservatives have bought into sodomy hook, line, and sinker. You understand that now, right? I'm old enough that I remember when they all condemned it 15 years ago, 20 years ago. They used it for political interest to get votes for Republicans. Now they all embrace it. They embrace every evil down the line. The difference with the Christian is his fealty is to Christ. And he will not. And those who do are nothing but cheap whores. That's all they ever were. Tears in the midst of the pasture of God. This worthless form of American Christianity in our day eases tensions while biblical Christianity creates them. This worthless form of American Christianity papers over the cracks of evil, whereas biblical Christianity strips away the covering, exposing the evil. American Christianity, as Schlossberg says, prescribes aspirin for cancer. Biblical Christianity insists on the knife. American Christianity, by and large, has chosen to befriend the powers that dominate the world instead of judging them. (gasps) Judging. Oh, God. That's judging. Yes. Everyone judges, including the guy who says you should not judge, has just judged. (laughs) Judging is inescapable. It's part of life. It's just whose standard are you going to judge according to? God's or these whack jobs running America? American Christianity, by and large, has chosen to befriend the powers that dominate the world instead of judging them, instead of holding them accountable to the law and word of God. As Schlossberg says, people desire false teaching because it affirms the systems and worldviews to which they have given allegiance. People desire false teaching because it affirms the systems and worldviews to which they have given allegiance. So they seek religious leaders who will bless their idols. In other words, their whores. Plain and simple. Schlossberg writes of American Christians, quote, Choosing to be relevant to society's illusions instead of to their historic mission, they join society in its degeneration. Unquote. So hear me. Calling all young men, calling all men, calling all women. We need an iconoclastic Christianity in our day. We need an iconoclastic Christianity in our day. In a society in which idolatry runs rampant, a church that is not iconoclastic is a travesty. It's a laughingstock. It's a mere moose club going through religious 
and club-like motions week after week, accomplishing nothing that Christ purposed for it to do. And so I ask you, will you go? Will you say, send me, Lord, and minister in America and throughout the West where these idols are everywhere and need to be smashed? Will you go? Will you speak up? Or will you keep your mouth shut because you want to be liked?